bit of an unusual sermon for you today. I, um, I think some of you will track right along with me for the first uh, four or five seconds and then feel like, uh-oh, he has veered off badly. And uh, so I would just encourage you to uh, give me grace and practice patience because this sermon is not going to end up where you think it's going to end up, which I must say that's pretty much the way it is with me anyway. I, I'm never quite sure where the Lord's going to take us in a, in a message, and I'm always amazed when we get to the end of it, wow, how did we get here? And uh, I trust that's not my wondering. I trust, trust that that's his wondering. The Lord is good. In the year of our Lord, 1776, uh, now you will remember 1776 as the year, the war-torn year that saw our Declaration of Independence. In that same year, in that year, 1776, on December 23rd of that year, just two days before Christmas, the great American patriot Thomas Paine wrote these words, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country, but he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper place, a proper price upon its good, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. And Thomas Paine wrote those words, in the winter of 1776, and the winter of 1777 was worse. The following winter, the winter of 1777, George Washington and the troops were camped just north of Philadelphia and experienced the dreadful year that saw the wintry horrors of Valley Forge. So 1777 would be a difficult year as well. And I suppose that many Many of the years that we have endured as a country together could be classified as times that try men's souls. I think of the War of 1812 when a foreign country, the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, invaded us, captured our capital city, and burned it. I think of the dreadful years of 1861 through 1865 when we as a nation endured and then survived the Civil War. And then there was World War I, beginning in 1914, ending in 1918, also the year that saw the Spanish flu, a flu that claimed the lives of over 50 million people worldwide. World War II, beginning for us in 1941 and ending in 1945, saw almost 300,000 Young American men dead. We have seen some difficult years in our brief history. You know I haven't listed them all. 
And I suppose in some ways 2020 could certainly be classified as a year in which it is a time that tries men's souls. I've lived for 61 years. I would have to say 2020 is right up there. Certainly one of the most difficult years I've experienced. And may I take a brief time out here? May I assure you that this sermon is not about the United States of America? It's not. And may I humbly ask you to listen ever so closely to what I'm about to say, because if you, if you, if you mishear this, if you misunderstand this, you're not going to get where we're going, and I want you to go with me. So please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. It is true that I am an American Christian. I have always breathed the air of freedom. Why? Why did the Lord place us here at this point in time? What blessing. I'm going to say it again. I'm an American Christian. Please note that I did not say that I'm a Christian American. To my way of thinking, there's a big difference between those two terms. I'm a Christian who, by the grace of God, just happens to be from America. And it's not the other way around. I'm not an American who just happens to be a Christian. And the old English teacher in me would remind you that the noun is always more important than the adjective. And the noun is Christian. The adjective is American. It's true the adjective tells us a little bit about the noun. I am an American, but my identity is in Christ. Father, bless these words. Bless our time together in the scriptures. Humble us. Teach us what you would have us to learn today. Help us to worship you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So as this American Christian begins to reflect on a dark and difficult year, the year of our Lord 2020, I remind you and I remind myself that this is the year of our Lord 2020. It's not 1776. It's not 1812. It's not 1861 to 1865. It's not 1918. It's not 1941 through 45. It's not... 2001, but it has been a difficult year. And what has happened and what is happening and what will happen to those of us and those around us, rest assured, this is all in God's plan. Brothers and sisters, we are being tested. And we are being tested according to the will of the Father in, a, in accordance with his holy, holy sovereign plan. As our newest Supreme Court justice said, yes, life is hard, but at least it's short. And this concept of our lives being short is in accordance with the word of God. That is truth. James said that our lives are like a vapor. Moses said that we're like grass. Grows in the morning, sprouts and grows by evening, it withers and dries up. Our lives last 70 years, or if we're strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. I was reading in the Psalms this morning, Psalm 39. David says this, Lord, make me aware of my end. 
and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. <coughs> In fact, you have made, made my days just, just inches long. And my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes around like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. And then David says, now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Our lives are like a vapor. Inches short. Our lives are like grass. Our lives are short, but we are being tested. How are we being tested, Brother Kevin? And who is testing us? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. What a testimony. By faith Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleases God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great faith chapter. It could be the great approval chapter. Did you hear how many times the word approval or approved was mentioned there? For by this faith, for by faith our ancestors were approved. You know that God is grading us? Thank the Lord he's not grading us according to our works for If he were grading us according to our works, we would fail and fail miserably. No, he is grading us according to our faith. And if he would test his own friend, Abraham, who is known as the friend of God, and he would test him and he would test him so severely, do you think he wouldn't test you? So why are we surprised when we're tested? All of our life we are being tested. God is testing us to see how we do in regards to faith. And may I remind you that if it were easy, it wouldn't require faith. If you understood it all, it would not require faith. The fact that it's not easy and the fact that you don't understand it all should lead you to faith. And I believe that there is a faith continuum. I believe that there is a faith line. I believe we all start in unbelief. Some of us proceed to disbelief and then some of us end in true belief. And I see this faith line in John chapter 20. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, I'll be reading verses 1 through 2. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, 
and we don't know where they've put him. All faith starts in unbelief. Unbelief is not necessarily because our hearts are hard. Could be. But we all start in unbelief, and sometimes, unfortunately, we stay in unbelief. What a terrible place to live. But sometimes we start in unbelief, not necessarily because our hearts are hard, but because our minds are ignorant. And sometimes we stay there because we don't understand. This fact about unbelief is clearly stated in the gospel passage here, John chapter 20. If you... If you look at this, it's very clear that the disciples, specifically Peter and John, and I believe this applies to Mary Magdalene and to the other disciples as well, it says very clearly that they did not understand. They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Isn't it great to have Easter in November? We have Easter every single Sunday. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. We speculated on why she came to the tomb early in Sunday school this morning. Was it because she was used to working by herself, away from others, because of the shame that followed her? Or was it because she woke up early that morning and had a mission in mind and could not go back to sleep? But she came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she found that the stone had been removed, and so she ran to report this to Simon, Peter, and John. And what did she tell them? Did she tell them, good news, the Lord has risen from the dead? No. In her unbelief, she was still looking for a human explanation. She was not looking for or reporting that a miracle had taken place, although a miracle had taken place. She was operating like we all do before we come to belief. Mary Magdalene reported to Simon Peter and John, who also ran to the tomb that morning. By the way, there's a lot of running going on that morning. And Simon Peter and John didn't believe her either. Or they didn't, they believed that the tomb was empty, but they, they weren't connecting the dots. Did Simon Peter and John comfort Mary and say, Mary, it's okay, God's got this. Jesus has risen from, no, they didn't say that. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't understand. But I believe that even at that point, their unbelief was beginning to give way to disbelief. Why else would they run? It's an empty tomb after all. Mary had already told them Jesus wasn't there. Why are they running? I believe they're running because unbelief is giving way. So we start in unbelief and the faith line continues into disbelief. Could it be? Simon Peter or John, could it be that they're done with unbelief and they're running in their new disbelief? Could it be that Jesus is not in the tomb, not because someone has stolen his body, but he's not in the tomb because he has risen from the dead as he said he would? John chapter 20, verses 3 through 7, when John... And Simon Peter get the word from Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty. At that, at that, that report. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. 
the disciples were slightly competitive, I've noticed. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Unbelief to disbelief, about to find true rest in belief. Verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed. For they still did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And all of this started in unbelief. We start like the unbelieving Jews who can't get past the shame of the cross. How could one who is cursed by God, hung on a tree, save us? We start like the unbelieving Gentiles who can't get past the foolishness of the cross. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, said this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. The, The cross is bad news to those in unbelief. So to all of our friends and family and neighbors who now live in unbelief where we once lived, we love them. We pity them, and we remember that we too were once lost in our sins. We do not patronize them. We do not look down on them. We remember that we too were once lost in our sins. Paul then goes on to say this to our Corinthian brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. We start in unbelief. Then we hear the good news of the gospel and our unbelief begins to crumble into disbelief. Could it be? Has God made a way for us to be reconciled to Him, to Himself? Our doubts dampen our hopes, but could this be true? We're beginning to understand. We're beginning to grasp. We're like the man who cried out to Jesus. Jesus said, All things are possible to the one who believes. And the father in desperation said, I believe, help my unbelief. Beautiful picture of what happens on the faith line continuum from unbelief to disbelief to belief. We have always heard that if something is too good to be true, then it's not. But the gospel is different. This is too good to not be true. And can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou my God shouldst die for me? The cross is good news to those who believe. We, believe, we live in unbelief. We hear the good news of the gospel We respond in disbelief. We ask ourselves, could this be true? Could this really be true? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And our disbelief crumbles and gives way to true belief. Yes, the God of the universe did love you so much that He sent His one and only Son to pay the price of our sins on the cross. But death could not hold Him. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. And as the disciples soon realized on that beautiful Easter morning, that which seemed to be too good to be true is true. 
Jesus is alive and he has conquered death and sin and hell and in his victory. Those of us who believe we are alive, sin is defeated, heaven awaits us. And yet we ask, as Moses asks, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you've humbled us for as many years as we've seen adversity. Lord, as a church, we have prayed for our nation and we continue to pray for our nation. Just this Tuesday, we gathered here at the church to pray for this nation. And I would submit to you that we live in a land of unanswered prayer. Who prayed for what we got? I doubt anybody prayed for what we got. But yet God in his sovereign mercy and grace has given us exactly what we have. Oh, by the way, I don't think the disciples prayed for what they got either. As they gathered in the upper room in the darkness and they thought about what had just happened to their Lord and Savior, their Master, do you think they were rejoicing over how God had answered their prayers? No. They too lived in a world of unanswered prayers. We live in a time of great unbelief. And yet, we're here. We're being tested. These are times that try men's souls. Is there anybody here who's still surprised at that? Shouldn't be. Because this is the Lord building our faith. This is the Lord grading us. This is the Lord testing us to see if we're going to pass with his seal of approval. Years from now, we'll look back, I believe, those of us who make it out of 2020, I believe we'll look back and we will see that God was faithful. My question is, are we going to be faithful? Father, forgive us. Forgive us for doubting you. We ask, Lord, that you would establish the work of our hands. We ask, Lord, that you would let your children see your glory and that our children would see your splendor. However it plays out, we trust you and you alone. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.